You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. What's your name? Armand. Armand, and how old are you? I'm 11 years old. 11 years old. And you seem transfixed by what's happening at this table here. Now, I can't quite see because it's right around the corner. What's going on? Can you explain it to me? This man right here is saying what the brain does for you. Well, that's great. As long as he's not holding on to an actual brain, right? He's just describing it, right? It's actually a real brain from... A real brain. Yeah, it's from a guy who died and he donated it to science. So they preserved it in something called like alcohol or something. And you can like touch it and it's nice and hard. Can you imagine that you have a brain like that in your own skull? No, I wouldn't if I didn't come here today, but it looks, it's really interesting. All right, well, thank you very much. You're welcome. You know, what I find interesting about that, Molly, is his comment that the brain was really hard. Because I think most people think of brains being somewhat soft. Many of the brains of my friends are soft. You don't <laughs> find it interesting that there was a human brain sitting on a, on a table somewhere? Well, there are probably brains sitting on tables. I mean, you go into the local medical school, you'll probably see brains sitting on tables. I I don't have one on my table, I have to say, (laughs) or anywhere near my table. If we're going to discuss brains at all and the mind, it's good to get close and and personal with your your subject, get to know it a little bit. Well, that was fairly convoluted like a brain. But yes, I I do (laughs) think getting up close and personal with your brain. There's something a little bit, uh, it makes you a little bit queasy to get near a brain, unlike Getting next to if somebody had a kidney sitting in a, you know, in a jar or a tray or somewhere near you, that's, but but your brain, of course, you always regard your brain as something special because to the extent that you know we actually exist as as real souls, I, I don't know that that's such a loaded word, but you know what I mean. That it must be in the brain. It's not likely to be in your, you know, esophagus or your pancreas or something like that. So there is something a little bit um, dismaying about seeing a brain. For some people, maybe their identity does hide in their esophagus. <laughs> well, I, I don't know about that. I mean, I think it's the fact that our consciousness is in our brain. Everything that's going on, the, the world as we see it, the, 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 when we talk to ourselves, when we dream, when we anything we do, it's all up in that organ. So to see it sitting on a table, not connected to anybody, is a little gives me the shivers. But judging by the sounds in the background, the crowd and the, and the age of the person you were talking to, or what sounded like the age of that person. You weren't in a medical school. Where, where the heck were you? I was at a grocery store. No, I was actually at the University of California, Berkeley campus, uh, talking to a cognitive scientist who was there holding a human brain, which I have to say is quite startling to see. 
I was talking to a, a, a cognitive scientist there who was talking to the children who were coming up to him. His name, the scientist's name is Peruz Kambata. I could say that he and other scientists are, are trying to read minds. This is a real human brain. An average human brain is around three pounds, and uh, it has bumps and grooves. The bumps are called gyri, and the grooves are called uh, sulci. And uh, the reason you have bumps and grooves in your brain is so you can fit more surface area into a smaller space. So if you open this whole thing up, it would be a lot bigger than what fits inside your skull. We're supposed to have an open mind, right? So. <laughs> yeah, uh, the mind-body problem is actually a really uh, interesting question in philosophy, where you see this bunch of matter right here, but this is a person. I mean, this, this person had memories and thoughts, and how did those thoughts get represented by neurons firing in the frontal lobe? So that's something that we're working on uh, finding out. Now, can we see the neurons? Well, the neurons are microscopic. You wouldn't be able to see them with the naked eye. But there are billions and billions of neurons in everybody's brain. So in the brain, uh, neurons are connected through uh, these structures called axons, and they send electrical signals to one another. Some of the axons are insulated um, by a type of fat known as myelin. So if you think about a wire, you insulate a wire with rubber so that it conducts better, and that's the same thing in the brain. We just use fat to do it. So you might have heard of white matter. The fat is white, so those are myelinated axons. You have a question? Yeah. Um, can you, like, find out the memories that that person had when he was alive? <laughs> As of right now, we don't really have that technology. But uh, I guess it's theoretically possible, maybe, that we'd be able to figure that out at uh, some point. Yeah, long, long into the future. Can you actually make a robot with a real brain with that? <laughs> That's a great question. Can you make a robot with a real brain? Well, as of right now, we can't. And I don't really know anyone who's working on it. But, um, but I guess it's, it's possible. Because at the end of the day, the brain is just made out of matter. But that raises a lot of questions, right? If a robot had a human brain, would it be a person? Or would it still be a machine? What do you think? Do you think it would be a person or a machine? I have no idea. <laughs> That's a very smart answer. <laughs> Well, Molly, those kids asked the really important questions now, didn't they? I mean, the first thing you want to know, this brain is a person, was a person. But can we get at that person? Can we learn something about their thoughts and, you know, their experiences, whatever? And the idea of what makes a person. Is it just the brain? Is it more than that? If you combine it with a machine, is it still a person? Is the robot a person? Yeah, yeah. I, it, it's like if I take my old computer, here it is sitting on, on a desk, my computer from five years ago, you could interrogate that and find out a whole lot about the life of that computer, assuming nobody had destroyed the hard disk, right? So why not a brain? That whole question of, of merging the mind and the machine is a big one right now in not just in robotics, um, but in neuroscience. How close can we get to our machines? Can we control our machines with our minds? Could our machines help enhance our own cognitive abilities? I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science. We'll find out how far mind-machine hookups may go and why not everyone thinks more is better. But Duke University neuroengineer Miguel Nicolelis is not that person. He's excited about the future of brain-machine interfaces. A pioneer in the field of neuroprosthetics, his research team was the first to implant an electrode in a monkey's brain so that it could successfully move a joystick with only its thoughts. Dr. Nicolelis sees this as a step forward in helping people who are paralyzed to operate a computer, for example. But he sees possibilities that go far beyond rehabilitation. And this technology isn't for the far-off future. This future is already here. Oh, it's already here. 
the applications that we will talk probably in a few minutes uh, will come in the next few years, but the field is very, very real and, and the research is spreading as quickly as you know, we can talk about it. Can you describe for me the robotic prosthetics that can be controlled via electrical impulses from the brain? Well, right now, you can control any mechanical device. Uh, now, we have demonstrated that you can use uh, robotic arms, hands, legs, a uh, whole body. So we, we are learning more and more about how to use brain activity, electrical activity, to control these devices. But the brain-machine interfaces that we developed here at Duke are, are generic enough to allow these signals to be used by a, you know, a huge variety of actuators. Well, let's focus on one device in particular. I'd like to talk about the thin exoskeleton that allows one to move around a person who has been perhaps disabled and is not able to move around on their own. The idea with this exoskeleton is that it's connected to the brain and then it holds the body up. Is that right? Can you describe? Actually, this is my favorite project right now. Is uh, We call it a Walk Again project. And we are hoping to have the first clinical demonstration of this whole idea in 2014. And the idea is exactly what you described, is to restore whole body mobility to a patient who suffered a spinal cord injury, for instance, and is paralyzed below the neck. What we are working on with our collaborators all over the world is to have a whole body robotic suit that can be controlled directly by the brain activity of this patient so that the patient can enact uh, his or her voluntary motor will by sending these electrical control signals to the exoskeleton and actually get it to move according to his or her thoughts. But there is a second leg of it. The device is going to send signals back to the brain so that the brain not only knows what is happening, but also can use this information to assimilate this exoskeleton as an extension of the original body representation of that patient that the brain had. In some ways, are you fooling the brain into thinking that it's connecting with a physical body then again? To some degree, yes. The brain, in our conception, is really a, a modeler, a simulator. It is creating continuously models about the statistics of the surrounding environment and also a model of self. So what we are doing is playing the rules the, the brain takes to create these models to fool it in believing it that the new body is going to be this exoskeleton. So when it does this incorporation, the brain is going to operate this body as if it were the original biological body of the patient. Now, so is the idea that each filament goes into the brain and connects with a single neuron? Well, each of these filaments go about a couple millimeters inside the brain. That's all that you need. And what it does is to record the electrical currents produced not by a single neuron, but by a few neurons that are around the exposed tip of this uh, filament. Our goal in the future is to get close to 20 to 30,000 cells recorded simultaneously. This is the type of mass of cells that you need to record from to generate the motor commands needed to control a whole body. Now, so to be clear, are you tapping into part of the brain that controls the movement of the legs, or are you tapping into the part of the brain that controls one's thought about moving their legs? And is that... Is that an important distinction? Well, in reality, we are tapping on the circuit that involves many superficial areas of the brain that are involved in thinking about moving your whole body, not only your legs, but your whole body. So the motor commands that we are reading are truly components of a thought, a motor thought. 
that the subject is going to produce. We cannot record the millions of cells that are involved in each time this patient is going to think about a particular movement, but we learn from animal work that we don't need to. We can record a, a smaller, a much smaller fraction of these neurons, and yet we can reproduce, you know, pre-complex movements in these robotic devices. So, in essence, we are reading uh, components of this thinking that goes on to move your body, but we are using the principles that we learn about, you know, how the brain does this, and is in a very distributed, parallel way, so that we can get enough signals to restore mobility. Now, you envision a future in which this sort of technology is not limited to bringing back neurological function to those who have it, uh, say, the paralyzed to walk again and, and be able to operate computers, but that this is a future of human minds melding with machines that you're optimistic about. I wonder, will all future brains interface this way with machines? Oh, I truly believe so. In fact, I think that after this first phase uh, in which this technology will be applied to rehabilitation medicine, we are going to see a tremendous explosion of applications in computer science, where our interfaces with our computers in any digital machine is going to be very different than we have today. We will interface with these devices just by thinking. We are going to be immersed into these operating systems as if we were part of a holodeck or a virtual reality room. And so we will be part of the operating system, literally. And in the future, yes, I do believe, and we are talking about, you know, decades or even hundreds of years from now, that we are going to be able to communicate with devices and perhaps even among ourselves in a completely different way. Why? Uh, why is that an advantage? Why? I mean, why, why do this? Why connect ourselves so intimately with our machine? Is it, is it because we can? No, it's because you can in- increase tremendously the reach uh, of our species, and that's basically the history of our species. We are not only great tool makers just by accident, it's because our survival and our adventure of exploring the, the universe is intimately related to our ability to generate tools, and more than that, to incorporate these tools, these artificial tools that we create, as part of ourselves. The tools that we created are assimilated by our brains as an extension of ourselves. I think this kind of melding is not really something of science fiction. I don't see this in a negative scenario because we are actually merging with our creations. The tools and machines and computers and everything that we see around us are part of the projection of our brain's creativity. So they are our offspring, literally. When we're hooked up to machines in the, in the way that you describe, where does the machine end and the human brain begin? If we're talking about electrical impulses, one could say that that line is, is quite blurry. Well, when you see a particular action being taken by the connection, if you're only observing the output, you may not see any distinction because that will be part of a whole. The machine and the brain will be connected in a way that, you know, it performs a task or a particular function that, you know, you really cannot divide them. I go against the mainstream today. Most people that believe in the theory of the singularity, I don't believe in that at all. And I think that's scientifically impossible. Machines will never replace a brain because machines will never be able to acquire the kind of consciousness and cognitive skills that a human brain has, simply because you cannot reproduce in machines the kind of evolutional and uh, individual history that our brains contain. So there will always be a place for, you know, a human brain to be 
absolutely distinguishable from any machine that we create because the only hope machines have to acquire uh, consciousness or to acquire a, a sense of humanity is to be part of us, not the opposite. So there is no singularity in sight. This is never going to happen. Uh, you cannot reproduce in machines the kind of skills and aptitudes that a human brain has. Miguel, it sounds like you're optimistic about this future, and I've read that you've described this melding of machine and mind as the liberation of our minds from our terrestrial bodies. But I wasn't aware that my mind was imprisoned. Well, to some degree it has been since you know our species came about. The capabilities of the human mind were, for many millions of years, limited by the physical constraints of our bodies, and where only when we started building tools that our mind's capability started to be liberated by these physical constraints that we have. And I think the moment we liberate our thoughts and we're able to send them a speed of light to interact with devices there in other planets or in other galaxies, these limits are going to become less and less relevant and our species will be able to really return to adventures in voyages that where we came from actually because we we actually the product of stardust right so we may be able to return to our real origins and do things that we never thought possible while occupying this really delicate and fragile human body and you think we can have experiences that are more profound and rich than the ones that we have now being just biological humans oh absolutely i think we are going to experience sensations and percepts of the, the universe that we have never deemed possible. But more than that, we are going to expand our reach in terms of what we can feel and what we can do to a level that not even science fiction was able to capture so far. It sounds like you have this interest in science fiction. Do you have a, a favorite science fiction author? I think I got into thinking about the brain when I was a kid reading Isaac Asimov. He had a book called Brain that was fascinating to me when I was a kid. Arthur C. Clarke, too, was uh, one of my favorites. And believe it or not, I got into science because of the Apollo program. You know, the, in the late 60s, I was completely hooked to the space race. Since then, I have had a very close love affair with uh, cosmology, astronomy. And I think to some degree that was very influential to me in terms of becoming a neuroscientist. So for me, it has always been fascinating to make this connection. Miguel Nicolelis, thank you very much for talking with us. Oh, it was a great pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Miguel Nicolelis is the director for the Center of Neuroengineering at Duke University and author of Beyond Boundaries, The New Neuroscience of Connecting Brains with Machines and How It Will Change Our Lives. Molly, it's so interesting that he's predicting a kind of high bandwidth interaction. I mean, not just simple commands like you talk to your dog, sit, you know, all that kind of stuff, that you can do very complex thoughts, and that will be able to be transmitted to your computer or some other machine. Right, and there's so much we need to understand about the brain first, of course, for some of this to happen. What I find fascinating is his optimism. I mean, he's really excited about this future where the machines and the minds become one. Well, I'll tell you this, it may be using a keyboard. Were you surprised to hear that his interest in science and in the brain stemmed from science fiction and also from cosmology and astronomy? Well, cosmology and astronomy is a bit surprising. I mean, from science fiction, there's a lot of science fiction, of course, that has to do with how the mind works and other kinds of minds. But cosmology, that's a little different, that maybe it stretched his mind in an unforeseen way. And that line about we're all stardust. Yes, that, that actually is mostly attributed to Carl Sagan. 
coming up, losing ourselves in virtual reality. It's the ultimate hookup on Big Picture Science. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. Okay, humans may have highly accomplished brains, but we're not the only brainy species. I was quite impressed with the human brain over there. I understand we have another brain on display here, one of our relatives from way, way, way back in the evolutionary line. I think we split off with rodents a long time ago. Can you give me your name, please? Anna Kazenzon. What you have in your hand right now looks like the size of a chickpea. But it's not a chickpea, is it? No, although the kids have been making a lot of pea brain jokes. <laughs> what is it? This is a rat brain, the full rat brain. So you can see that it, it is quite small like a chickpea, and it has the cerebrum and cerebellum portions with a much larger cerebellum proportionally than you'd find on the human because they have a lot of more basic functions that they carry out as opposed to higher level cognitive processes. And you can see that the cortex is a lot less wrinkled than human brains. And that goes to show that even though proportionally maybe a rat's brain is kind of similar to a human's in size, it has a lot less mm, functional power because of the smoothness, less wrinkled, less surface area. So there are a lot less neurons that can make connections. Are you saying that humans are more intelligent than rats? That is a possibility. <laughs> so it's really remarkable, though, because that is a teeny, teeny, tiny brain. And so intelligence is somewhat coordinated with size. Somewhat, yeah. But, I mean, the rat can still do a lot. I mean, they have wonderful rat lives that they seem to enjoy. So it's remarkable to see how much thought can come from such a teeny, tiny little brain. I guess smart things come in small packages. <laughs> it is remarkable how clever some of these critters are that have these little tiny brains. In fact, what, what always strikes me is not that they, you know, write great literature or anything like that. They don't do that. But they're very adaptable. You can give them a new situation and they, they can figure out something reasonable to do. The exception that comes to mind are the squirrels who always run right in front of my car. But, but other rodents seem pretty clever. Well, I love the fact that she wasn't going to disparage the rat, that the rat even though it had this tiny, tiny brain, which was really remarkable to look at, Seth, it still has accomplished quite a lot in its little life. I, I will have to say one thing, though, Seth, is that I don't know if I can ever eat chickpea salad again, because that really is about the size and the look of what a rat brain looks like. Well, I think you should just reverse that and consider that the next time you look at a rat, you should think of a salad. Maybe that's the way to do it. I, you know what strikes me at first glance is the fact that those little chickpea brains can do so much. Rats can enjoy their great rat lives. And it takes so much more of a brain 
to be able to do the additional things that humans do, which don't clearly make us any happier with our lives than your average rat. Now, one thing rats can't do, though, is travel into virtual reality. (laughs) I think you're right about that. Ever since the first storyteller, humans have used their big brains to create fictional worlds. Now it's possible to surround yourself with these worlds using virtual reality technology, like that found in Jeremy Balinson's lab at Stanford University. Seth took a terrifying walk across an illusory pit with Jeremy Balinson and Jim Blaskovich, a research psychologist at the University of California, Santa Barbara. We're here at Stanford's Virtual Human Interaction Lab. It's a kind of a quiet room. And standing in front of me is Jeremy Balinson holding what looks like some sort of torture device that I think he's going to put over my head. All right, Jeremy, uh, what do I do? This is our multi-sensory room. In this room, we are going to immerse you, perceptually surround you in three senses. With sight, which is what this device does, it has two separate displays, one for each eye. This gives you a field of view of about 111 degrees diagonal, and the resolution in each eye is about 1,200 by 1,000. So this lets you see in stereo, lets you see depth, and it gives you a fairly real field of view. In addition, what you have in this room is you have a 23-channel a surround sound system. So we can spatialize sound in a very precise way. So with the the visual display, this torture device helmet that we're about to put on you, that lets you see things in virtual reality. What we can do with these speakers is sound will move with the sight. So let's imagine one of the demonstrations you're going to see is going to be a forest and there's virtual birds. When you see a virtual bird fly by, you'll actually hear the bird go by as you see it go by and that's what we leverage this spatialized sound system. So the third thing that we do in this lab is virtual touch. So if you look down on the floor, you'll see the carpet is gold in about a 16 foot by 16 foot square. This is very rigid airplane steel that's designed to carry vibrations in a really good manner. So I'm stamping my foot there and you should feel that in your feet. Yes. What we have in the four corners of the room is what we call butt kickers. That's the name of a speaker that gives very low frequency sound that can cause vibrations. And so they can make the floor shake. So you can see an event you can hear an event and you can also feel the event. This is a, a very multi-sensory experience, creates what we call immersion so that you feel like you're in the virtual world. Fantastic, all right, well, well, let's do it. I, I hope this is gonna be a good experience in addition to being virtual. So I'm gonna put this on your head here. I'm tightening it on the back and on all the right. front. Don't squeeze the brain too much. Okay, There's and I'm so little it of nice it left. Tight. Okay, and uh, that's good. Okay, so now please take a step back. All right. Does the world move with you? Uh, yeah, every, the perspective is great. The tracking system here, we work very hard to make the tracking work. It's tracking about 100 times a second your position in this room with an accuracy of one quarter of one millimeter. So one of the key things to make virtual reality good is a very precise correspondence between your physical movements and the scene virtually should update with those physical movements. So we work very hard at making that really precise. So, okay, so that's the difference between this and a movie. I mean, a movie, of course, it wouldn't react to where I'm looking. The movie is taken from one single angle and that director chooses the angle and it's pre-recorded. Every time you move, you're changing where the virtual camera is. Okay, so, sounds good. Uh, take a step backward then. All right. And I want you to look down and you see that plank there? I do. What I see is what looks like a 10-inch wide wooden plank. It looks like it might be pine or something and maybe six feet long laid out in front of me as if it was something that I ought to walk on. Take a step forward toward it. Okay. And now stop. All right. And now Cody, hit the boom. Oh. Not so good because this giant pit opened up all around the plank. The plank looks like it's rather precariously laid between me and the far side. 
and you, you don't want me to walk this, do you? Uh, it's up to you what you want to do. About one in three adults refuse to take a step in this situation. Oh, so. I'll walk this plank. Okay. I, it's, you know, it'll be a first for me. Okay. okay. All right. I'm, I'm just going to... Ooh, wait, 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 wait. Oh, God. Okay. Oh, nearly fell. Wait a minute. This is scary. Okay. This is re really, really scary. Okay, so I'm holding my hands out so you don't fall. Some All adults right. actually physically crumble to the ground here. I'm uh -huh. making sure that doesn't happen to you. Okay, right. Do I drop into the ocean at this end? Oh, no. I, I made it to the far side. So, very impressive. Very impressive. So, uh, you've been very brave, so I'm going to ask you to be a little bit braver. Rotate 180 degrees uh, to your left. Okay. Now I want you to walk back on that plank, and I want you to stop when you're halfway across the plank. So stop halfway across the plank. All right. Okay. So take it's, a step. Yeah. It's scary from this angle. It's actually scary. It is. Yep. You know, there's no feel of wood under my feet, and yet it's like I'm walking on this plank. If you feel comfortable, and about one in four adults will be willing to do this, most people aren't, I want you to rotate a little bit to the side. What I want you to do now is don't jump because you're in a physical room and there's nowhere to jump to, but I want you to just step into that void. Want me to step off this plank into this pit? That's what I want you to do. You know, uh, e even the government wouldn't ask me to do this. All right, I'll, I'll do it, but only because, ah, ah, bam. I'm at the bottom of the pit. Very good. No very snakes. Good, very good. No snakes. Like hey, that's pretty impressive, way, Jeremy. So you were very brave, and uh, we applaud you for doing that. Very yeah. good job. <laughs> so, Jim, this is, uh, you have your own lab. This is Jeremy's lab. Yes. A couple of things, Jim, that, that, that strike me. To begin with, I mean, you're not doing this for entertainment purposes, although it is, I have to say, rather entertaining in a scary way. Even though intellectually I knew that this was just, you know, a virtual reality demonstration, I have to say that my body reacted as if I were really on a plank above a pit. It is very convincing, and it didn't take too many cues, just eyes, and I don't think I even heard much. I think you're hitting right on the, one of the principles and processes that really contributes to the experience, the immersion, as we call it. And that stems out of work that's been done primarily over the last 20 years on what social psychologists called embodiment. It's not just our brain that remembers things. We get cues from our movements and the kinesthetic cues that come from our limbs and all those sorts of things. So it's not just that it looks real or not just that it sounds real, but the movements are captured and all your body is telling you is you're in this space. Your brain doesn't really care if you're in physical reality or what we call virtual reality. Now, this, this is rather remarkable to me because you would think that your, you know, your conscious brain would be able to override that. But I guess this is functionality in the brain that's, if you will, primitive in the sense that it comes from a, a long time ago. Yes, exactly. What we've also learned in the last 20 years is about 90% of behavior, at least, is driven by unconscious and automatic processes. And the top-down stuff, the conscious stuff, you know, is relatively recent in evolution. And we've never been involved, actually, to have being on a precipice not being an actual physical precipice. In terms of what it takes to convince somebody that what they're experiencing is immediate and real, because that's the way I felt that plank, even though, as I say, intellectually, I knew it wasn't true. Do you need a lot of detail? Do you need lots of pixels, lots of polygons to represent the real world? Or can you use stick figures or something like that? No, you don't need lots of polygons. You can use stick figures. And uh, most people don't use photorealistic, highly photorealistic avatars or representations. It takes far less than people think. We've known this for a long, long time. Cartoonists and animators have known this intuitively. They can make you think a duck is a person, right? So the cues that you need, even though we're capable technologically now of rendering zillions of polygons, aren't all that important. What's important is movement realism, the communication cues. You know, it's, it's again like why an animator can make you think a duck is a person. And so we're extending this 
with this kind of technology to the visual, to the haptic, we can even do smells and you know all sorts of uh, other things. So the more bottom-up information that's coming in through the senses to our brain, the more the brain is going to respond as it would whether that sensation is coming from the natural world or any particular kind of media. So in other words, it's indistinguishable from actual uh, visual imagery. Something like that? So, yeah, something like that. But now we're getting into the question of what's reality and all those sorts of things. We've dealt with that issue for a long, long time. And so if you're going to do this stuff and start taking it really seriously into the levels that pertain to your question, you really have to know what reality is. And if you look at the philosophers and perceptionists, they tend to agree that it's all virtual. Now, now what about the after effects? Because I, I think you've written about what happens after somebody has an experience like this. Maybe they come in and you, you make them uh, uh, a little better than they actually are in some sense. Maybe they're taller than they normally are. Have you studied what happens when they take off the uh, helmet? Well, yes, actually, and Jeremy has done a lot of that in particular. This, these things all fit within a class of uh, things we call transformed social interactions. So if you give a person a taller avatar, they'll be better negotiators, both during a negotiation experiment in some sort of virtual reality, but that carries over into the physical world. We don't know for how long, but they tend to persist as better negotiators simply by being taller. Uh, Jeremy, so... In fact, this technique actually modifies behavior. Now, you don't know for how long it will modify behavior. So in some of our experiments, for example, we've run experiments where we show your avatar lose weight. Your avatar is uh, your body, your, your virtual representation. Imagine that you are exercising in physical space in this room. So, for example, you're jogging in place, and every 10 seconds that you jogged, you looked at your avatar, and your avatar lost a pound. Meaning, you saw the causal mechanism that connects physical exercise with weight loss. You saw it accelerated, and you could actually see pounds fall off you as you exercised. In that experiment, which uh, we've run a series of studies, probably 10 separate experiments, we've demonstrated that even up to 24 hours later when you can monitor people's behavior, people are exercising more, up to an hour more per day, when they've gotten that very visceral experience of seeing their weight go off when they exercise, we've also made them gain weight. So imagine that we force you to stand still and your avatar became obese because you were being inactive. This simulation causes behavior change long after the experience, certainly up to 24 hours. And with the obesity study in particular, we've shown that this experience shapes people's attitudes even a month later. Uh, what about other kinds of attitudes, uh, maybe your attitude toward people of a different race or, or even people of a different sex? Can you influence those? I mean, there, there's a famous Greek myth in which, uh, you know, a man is turned into a woman for seven years and then comes back as a man. And, of course, everybody wants to know what's better and that sort of thing. But you can actually do that here. Yes. We call this the Proteus effect. Proteus was a Greek god who could change shapes and change forms. What we do is we have subjects come in. They wear the head-mounted display just like you did, and they walk up to a virtual mirror. They see themselves in the virtual mirror, and if it's a male subject, he sees himself as a male, and it looks just like him. We then have him close his eyes for a second and we hit a button and when he opens his eyes he's become a woman or he's become a different race or he's become 40 years older and he sees himself in the mirror and as he gestures his mirror image follows him but it doesn't look like him so he controls this image in the mirror but it's strategically altered or transformed on a single dimension we have a large uh, research program that we've been doing for almost a decade now on diversity training so can you make somebody walk a mile 
in someone else's shoes with the idea of giving them empathy toward that person. So, for example, uh, white people tend to be racist toward blacks. Men tend to be sexist toward women. Young people tend to be ageist. So 18-year-old college students are very ageist towards people who are 65. And in all of these areas, we've run experiments where when you force someone to wear the body of the, quote, outgroup, meaning the person that they tend to be prejudiced toward, that you can reduce these negative attitudes toward those others. So as a tool for training people, people to have more empathy and to be more uh, socially conscious with the idea that in order to really understand what these people are going through, uh, this helps them walk a mile in their shoes. My goodness. Well, well, finally, Jeremy, I mean, this is truly impressive, not only the technology, of course, but what you can do with this, how you can, in fact, get into the brain in a way that the people who are trying to do that by putting suction cup electrodes on, on people's skulls can't do. You're, you're taking advantage of the natural portals into the brain, our sight, our hearing, our, our haptic senses of the things we feel and so forth. This is so impressive, but we're in a lab here at Stanford. What's going to happen 10 years down the road? Where, where will we see this technology going? It's not 10 years down the road. So there's a series of paradigm-shifting technologies, all of which happened this year. The first is what's called auto stereo, which is a way of seeing 3D images without wearing any glasses. So there's a new video game called Nintendo 3DS. This projects a hologram halfway between your eyes and the controller you hold in your hands, and you don't have to wear glasses. So you have a 3D immersive visual experience without anything on your face. So that's already in half the school buses in America. The second is what's called the Microsoft Connect. This is a technology that does all the complicated tracking we're doing in this lab. You have eight cameras around and all these sensors. Uh, all that is going to be obsolete in a year because it can track all of your body motions without you having to wear anything. So just from a single camera image, they're tracking your motions the same way we're doing in this lab, and this allows you to control the virtual experience. So those two things combined are putting what we call virtual reality in the living room. So Jaron Lanier, the inventor of the term virtual reality, the builder of one of the first systems, has always claimed that no one's ever going to use VR when you've got to put things on your head or you have to have a room dedicated to it. And what we're finally seeing this year is in the living room, you've got the Microsoft Connect, which tracks your motions, and the Nintendo 3DS, which gives you an immersive visual experience. So VR is actually now out of the lab. And, uh, you know, I, I joke that this very uh, an amazing, beautiful lab that Stanford built is going to be completely obsolete in a year because video game technology has really put VR in the homes. I'm going to save my spare bedroom for the uh, holodeck. Yes, uh, but you won't need a spare bedroom. You'll just need a, a handheld device. Jeremy Balenson and Jim Blaskovich, uh, thanks so much for uh, making me walk the plank, I think. <laughs> my pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been great. Jeremy Balenson is the director of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford University. Jim Blaskovich directs the Research Center for Virtual Environments and Behavior at the University of California, Santa Barbara. They are co-authors of Infinite Reality, Avatars, Eternal Life, New Worlds, and the Dawn of the Virtual Revolution. Coming up, we're sure embracing our machines, but are we expecting too much from them and less of each other? Find out what we lose when we plug in. It's the ultimate hookup on Big Picture Science. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. 
No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Not everyone thinks being intimately hooked up to machines represents an unabashed step forward for humanity. And for many people who text while they walk, any step forward is a challenge. Walking into cars, off curbs, into traffic, people are sent to the emergency room because that message of AYS, I am A-L-O-L, couldn't wait until you were standing still. AYS, I am A-L-O-L. Are you serious? I'm actually laughing out loud. But texting and walking, texting and driving... These represent physical hazards, of course, but Sherry Turkle is worried about our psyches. In particular, the emotional development of young people, some of whom are plugged in 24-7. A professor of the Social Studies of Science and Technology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, she reports that some teenagers send and receive as many as six to 8,000 texts a month. People of all ages text everything from appointments to apologies, and they prefer this to talking to a person face-to-face can't stay off a BlackBerry, even during a memorial service. And spend hours on Facebook trying to determine the best photo and profile to enhance their popularity. And the cost is that people today, especially young people, may be foregoing meaningful, complex, messy relationships with human beings. Because relationships with human beings are all of those things. They're turning to texting and tuning into technology more and more. Alone together, why we expect more from technology and less from each other is MIT professor Sherry Turkle's latest book. Professor Turkle, describe what you mean by always connected to digital media and technology. By always connected, I mean that we now walk around with digital devices that connects us all the time to the web, through the web to each other. And young people are always on Facebook, always on the web, always a text away from being with each other. Now, I'm old enough to remember time before cell phones, and in fact, a time when answering machines were considered intrusive. If you ask one of these young people that you've interviewed and worked with and so forth to turn off their cell phone for a day or not log on to Facebook... They say no. I mean, it depends who's asking. If the parent is paying the bill and it's a family vacation, you'll get a a tremendous pushback because it's almost considered a part of the self. There's a tremendous anxiety of disconnection to be without your phone. And this is not just true of young people. Actually, grown-ups, too, are feeling a tremendous anxiety of disconnection when they're asked to be without their phone. If it's become so integrated now, um, then isn't it anachronistic to make a distinction between our real life and our online life, as you do in the book? Because perhaps they're just merging, and that's the future of where humanity is going. I don't think so. Of course, our online life is becoming part of who we are. But there are certain kinds of psychological sustenance that young people simply are not getting from online life, from texting, from being on Facebook. And so there needs to be a balance in full life between time online and time offline. Now, Sherry, you were once optimistic about the liberating 
possibilities of technology. In the mid-1990s, you wrote about the potential for people to experiment with different personalities on the web. It sounds like that opinion has changed. Why has that changed for you? Well, something happened. There was something I didn't see in the mid-90s, and I like to tell my students, call me not prescient. (laughs) There's truly something I didn't see. I imagined that this identity experimentation would take place at a computer, and then you would get up from your computer, and you would live your life, and then you would sit back down at your computer and enter a virtual world and have kind of more of these exciting online experiences, and that this would be very enhancing to your life in the real, and that these multiple ways of experimenting with the self would be life-enhancing. And what I didn't see is that we would have our devices on us basically 24-7 because people are sleeping with their phones and texting in the middle of the night and going onto Facebook in the middle of the night, and that they would give us the possibility of sort of bailing out from the life we are in at any moment when things get tough, when things get difficult, and being in this other life, this virtual life, whenever we felt like it. You write that young people keep themselves at a distance from their feelings, which is something you could argue that young people do anyway, a a teenager does anyway, trying to get in touch with his or her feelings because everything's so new. Why attribute this to digital media? And can you give me a specific example in the way that young people, I, I keep saying young people, but let's say anyone, controls their emotions or doesn't have the full range of human emotions because they're either online or on their cell phone or texting or whatever it may be. I talk about technological affordances and human vulnerability. In other words, we are vulnerable to wanting certain things. And the question is whether or not we have developed a technology that really can give them to us. And the truth is, is that we are vulnerable to wanting to avoid our feelings, and we have developed a technology that allows us to hide. I'll give you a perfect example is the difference between an apology and typing out I'm sorry and hitting the send key. So an apology, I have to look at you and say I'm sorry and see in your eyes that I've hurt you. And I have to stand there and really experience that I've hurt you And I have to be able to say, is there anything I can do to help? Whereas in a typical scenario with Facebook, kids just will type out, I'm sorry, and hit send, and that's it. They're done. And when they do that, they're not developing the capacity for empathy, for really experiencing someone else's feelings and allowing that relationship to potentially heal. You were explaining how this digital media allows people to control their emotions or control how much emotion and how much human-to-human interaction they have. Uh, But you also write about people, teenagers, for example, creating the ideal self online, even through their texting. It doesn't have to be in virtual reality, but through their texting. What does it mean to create the ideal self Well, what it means to create the ideal self is that when you go onto Facebook and you create a profile, you talk about the self you wish you were. You put up a picture that shows you looking great. 
you talk about in your status updates the places you're going, the parties you're going to, but you put up a self that's enticing, or this is what most people tend to do. In my interviews, people would talk to me about how they don't want to describe how their dog died, because why should they? They want to draw people to them. It's very unusual if people really begin to use Facebook as a place to talk about the more downbeat things, particularly in adolescence. Did you interview yeah. people who there was a great discrepancy between what they were feeling, what their life was like, and what they said to you they felt like they he or she needed to portray online? Absolutely. There's an expression called FOMA, fear of missing out. And it comes from the fact that people live their life, and then they look on Facebook, and everybody else seems to be skiing or at parties or just leaving for, you know, beaches because everybody's, you know, living their life, only putting on Facebook the amazing things. So everybody has this feeling of when they look on Facebook that they're missing out on the amazing things. So absolutely, there's a discrepancy between how people live and what they put on Facebook. Now, I don't know if it's my perception, but I feel like the art of small talk is fading among certain people, where it used to be that if you stood in line, if you're at the bus stop, if the coffee, you could just make small talk with people, even counter people behind the counter who were serving you or giving you a cup of coffee. You could joke, and it didn't mean anything. It was just a way, a pleasantry. It's harder and harder to do. Maybe that's just my experience. Are you finding that sort of chit-chat here and there is going by the wayside? Well, mostly small talk is over because the first thing people do is not attend to their physical surrounding. Everybody's on their phone. When you stand on the line for your coffee, most of the people on the line have their phones out. When I take a walk in the country, people are taking their walk in the country with their phone. Hmm. When you're waiting for a bus, when you're waiting in an airport line, people are not attending to the people around them. They're attending to the people on their network who they're texting through their phones. So all these detrimental effects, in your opinion, outweigh what the benefits are. People who would argue that now people who were isolated can now connect in a way that they couldn't and build intimate relationships or find the beginning of intimate relationships online in a way that they might not have been able to if they had to go meet friends on their own. Well, I don't think this is a question of either or having Facebook or not having Facebook. I'm not telling people to unplug or to stop using online materials. I'm saying we should use them. I like the phrase digital diet, that we don't stop using this technology. It's our partner in the life adventure right now. We have to do is use it wisely. So you're saying that there's no, as a psychologist, that there's no substitution for humans, as you said, not just young people, but grown-ups as well. There's no substitution for face-to-face encounters, that there's a certain amount of information, there's a certain kind of connection that we get when we have to look at another human in the face and talk to them. And and what's the difference? And, and why can't machines, because machines are becoming pretty sophisticated, why can't they ever be a substitution for that? Well, it depends what you're trying to accomplish. If you're trying to get information, machines can tell you lots of information. And they can be a substitute for giving you information. I'm just trying to make flight arrangements to visit my daughter in Paris. There's nothing faster than doing it online. But if you want to negotiate someone else's feelings, if you want to develop empathy, if you want to understand the spirit, the soul, the feelings of another human person, which is what relationships are about, you need to have the broadest possible 
experience of another human person, and the voice is a magnificent instrument for that. In fact, you write about all that's conveyed in the human voice. What do we convey with voice? Well, we convey if we're joking, we convey if we're angry, if we're being sarcastic. I mean, people are constantly getting into fights because, you know, no matter how many smiley faces you put in, you know, you can't inflection, you know, you can tell if somebody is serious or joking or sarcastic or ironic or or loves you. You can tell if someone loves you. And we're, we're doing ourselves and we're certainly doing our children a disservice by putting them and putting ourselves in environments where for too much of the time we're taking all of that richness away from them and away from us. Sherry Turkle, thank you very much for talking with us. My pleasure. Sherry Turkle is a professor of the Social Studies of Science and Technology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Her book is Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. Molly, you usually say something here. Uh, Hang on, Seth, and let's meet at the movies at 7 p.m., Bye-bye now, BBN. Send. (laughs) Yes, Seth, that's an excellent idea. Glad you're not driving. Go ahead. Yes, that's it for our program. Thanks to producer Gary Niederhoff, production assistants Barbara Vance and Keith Rosendahl, and volunteer Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Sholsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute. And thanks also to our listeners. You can find Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. If you're a podcast listener and prefer over-the-air radio, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.